Go ahead and open your Bibles, if you would, to John chapter 10. The last time we were together uh, to take the Lord's Supper as a body, we were in the first part of John 10. And, and Jesus is teaching the sum and substance of it is this description of him as the good shepherd. And, and, and the total package of what that means in the life of the believer, Jesus encapsulates in this. He says, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And he's pointing towards the fact that he would surrender his life. We recognize that in that surrender, in that death upon the cross, there is by extension of the gracious nature of it, his atoning sacrifice extends to you and I. The only way that we have worth in coming to this table is through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Not something we have done, but it's through the finished work of the Son. We pick up. We pick up, and today we're going to be in 10, 22 through 42. And, and some time has passed. And what we find is that, it, that it's winter. The text tells us that it's the time for the Feast of Dedication in Jerusalem. And, and the things that are taking place, the time when Jesus is there, are it's the, it's the holiday that, that we now know by the name of Hanukkah. It's this rededication of the temple. There was, there was an act of aggression. And so now the temple has been rededicated. And now they're into this eight-day cycle of rededication. And Jesus is out and he's walking along the colonnade of Solomon, and he gets encircled by Jews. These guys gather around him. They, they, they envelop Jesus, and the text tells us in verse 24, so they gathered around him, and they said to us, they, they asked his, this question of Jesus, how long will you keep us in suspense? They'd seen him heal people. You remember the account of the man Lame, laying there beside the pool, wanting someone desperately to help him to enter in so that he might be well. Year after year, season after season, this guy saw, saw the blind go into this pool and be healed. He heard tales of all those around him make it in there and be healed, but he himself had not been able to do that. Jesus told him to take up his mat and to walk. He told him to take up his mat and to walk and and you'll remember the story in, in John 9 where he heals the man born blind. He heals this guy born blind. And when asked the question of who he is, uh, when the blind man was asked the question, who healed you? What can you tell us? He said, look, this I can tell you. I was born blind and now I see. Jesus has performed amazing miracles to this date. And all of these things testify to one thing. He is different than all those who have come before him. He is radically unique. He is not this Messiah figure as they presumed that he would be. He's not this military political figure as they hoped he would be. He is something so much greater. And so they ask him, they come to him, and in some sense you might translate this, this word suspense as how long are you going to annoy us? How long are you going to keep these things from us? If it is you, if you're the Christ, they says, tell us plainly. Now, this idea plainly here is the same word that Paul has used over and over again in the pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, for boldly. This is what they want Jesus to do. They want him to stand up and boldly give a testament. Are you the Christ? Are you the one for whom all of our hopes, all of our aspirations, all of these things that the scriptures are pointing to, are you him? Tell us plainly. 
look how he responds, verse 25. I told you, and you do not believe. As a matter of fact, if you go back through and you read John 1 through John 10, you will notice that Jesus only commits one time that he is, in fact, the Christ. And do you know when that is? It's in John chapter 4 when he's talking to the Samaritan woman at the well. She describes this Messiah that would come and to set these things right. And his word to her is, I am he. She had this great sense of expectation of a religious figure who had come. The Jews surrounding him have this great sense of anticipation of this political, militaristic liberator. But he comes to this woman who is unsuspecting. Many would say unloved in her community. Considered an outcast by the Jews, and to her he entrusts his identity. Does that not say something to us about the nature of our great God? That he entrusts his identity to those whom we would ordinarily deem unworthy. And so those gathered around him, having a high sense of self-worth, want him to give a testimony to who he is, want to give a testimony to, uh, to assuage their anticipation. And his response is, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. Jesus' testimony is this. When I healed the blind man, this said something about me. When I went to the lame man and I made it where he could walk again, this says something about me. When I went to the Samaritan woman and helped to restore her to her community and used her testimony to lead other people to faith, it says something about me. We see that the works of Jesus aren't just works divorced from his words, but they are works which support his words. Look what he says. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. And this has to be a devastating word to them. You see, these men that it came up to him, they had this sense of expectation, this sense of deservedness on the basis of who they were by, by genetics, by familial relationship, that their fathers had been Jews, that their grandfathers had been Jews, that their family has Jewish lineage going all the way back. They assumed they made this connection that they were of his sheep on the basis of their family. It would be as if, if I were to walk up to you and say, Matt, are you a Christian? And you say, well, you know, Matt, my, my grandfather has been a Christian. My great-grandfather has been a Christian. But I come to you and I say, but Matt, has, has faith actually come to be real for you, to reside in your heart? For them, their understanding of this, it was real for them on the basis of who their forebears were. But Jesus' word to them is, you're not among my sheep. And he pulls us back into this imagery that he so carefully constructed earlier in chapter 10. He says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. So the basis of Jesus relating who is of his sheep and who is not of his sheep is on the basis of obedience. The sheep know the master's voice and they follow it. And look what he goes on to say he does for the sheep. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. Jesus pointing in his crucifixion, his resurrection, and his ascension testifies to these men. I give them eternal life. 
Do you remember when he met with the woman in chapter 4 at the well and he told her, if you knew who it was that asked you for a drink, you would ask of me and I would give you living water so that you might never thirst again? To these Jews, Jesus is the very embodiment of eternal life and he is freely extending to them. And they're not hearing He's freely demonstrating it to them in each and every miracle he performs, and they can't receive it. His word to them. When they say, tell us plainly, speak boldly, give us this word, are you the Christ? And his word to them is, I have already shown you countless time and again in all the acts that I have performed before you. But this I testify to you, that you are not among my sheep. And because they are not among his sheep, they will not receive eternal life. Because they are not among his sheep, they will indeed perish. Look at the sure promise Jesus extends to those who would know his voice and who would follow him. Not only will they receive eternal life, not only will they not perish, but he says that no one will ever snatch them out of his hands. This is what he's doing. He's bringing back the imagery of the good shepherd earlier in chapter 10. Look back at 10.12. Look back at John 10.12. He says, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. His his description of this and and of how these things work, and his description of the hired hand, he says in verse 12, he who is the hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees a wolf coming, and the East Texas translation would say that he tucks tail and runs. He heads up on out of there. He sees the wolf coming, and he leaves the sheep and flees And what does the wolf do? The wolf snatches them and scatters them. What is Jesus' testimony? He says, as this thief comes in and he grabs the the, uh, sheep and this wolf snatches them out, Jesus' own testimony is those who are my sheep who firmly rest in my hand might never be wrested from it, might never be taken from it, might never be snatched from it. For the Christian to rest in the hand of Jesus is to rest in peace. For the Christian to rest in the hand of Jesus is to rest in peace eternally. They will never be snatched from my hand. Now what he does next... It's truly fascinating. He makes this tremendous connection between himself, his ability, and the Father and his ability. He makes this incredible connection between his mission and purpose and the mission and purpose of the Father. He says, my Father, who has given them to me, my Father, who has given these sheep, who has entrusted them to me, is greater than all. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. He's making a reference to God. He said God is greater than anything you might be able to conceive. He's greater than anything you might be able to guess at. He's greater than all. And he's given them to me. But look what he says. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Just as the Father has entrusted them to Jesus, that he holds them firmly in his hand, so to Jesus, in relating his closeness to the Father, he says, my Father is over all, and no one is able to snatch them out of his hands. What is he saying? He's saying, just as the Father is over all, so too I am over all. I'm over all of these false conceptions of the Messiahs that you suppose were coming. I'm over all of the, the rituals and, and things that you've done in the past. I am over your hopes. I am over your dreams. I am over all just as he is over all. And how do we know this? Look what he says next. 
No one can snatch them out of my hand. No one can snatch them out of the Father's hand. Verse 30, I and the Father are one. We know that the mission, the plan, the purpose of Jesus is the mission, the plan, and the purpose given to him by the Father. In his testimony there of oneness with the Father, what he's driving at is that he only has the purpose that is to fulfill the Father's will. Jesus following in perfect harmony, Jesus seeking to follow after the will of the Father, followed that will all the way to the cross. And so as we come to take the Lord's Supper together, we recognize that as believers in Jesus Christ, that our will too is to do the will of the Father, that our will too is to seek to follow Him, to be obedient to Him. God calls us to follow him in radical obedience. And as we come to take, together we recognize God in his goodness sent the son to be the good shepherd, that the good shepherd might lay his life down for us. That as we reflect upon the works of Jesus, as we remember the words of Jesus, that we might be moved. And as we are moved, we might be moved to surrender. To surrender our wills, to surrender our pride, to surrender all those things that are at work in us that, that move us against God. And so as we prepare to pass out the first of the elements, I ask that you might reflect on what areas of your life are you still resisting and submitting to the Father. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that as we enter into these next moments that you would help us to reflect on, on your goodness as displayed through your Son. Father, as we enter into these next few moments, I ask that you would, God, be sending your Spirit to communicate to our hearts, convict us of sin, to drive us into righteousness. That for those of us who have sought our own way, that you would cause us to humbly fall before you, to raise our, our hands before you, and to cry out, save me. Save me from myself. And Father, we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. But I ask that as the elements are passed out, that you would hold it until all have received, and then we will take it in unison together.
Jesus took the bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. So Jesus really tended to say some pretty frustrating things from, from the perspective of the Pharisees, from the perspective, perspective of the Jews. And that's, that's kind of where he leaves us there in verse 30. He says, I and the Father are one. And for most of your Bible translations, you're going to have a break there. You're going to move into the next paragraph. But, but imagine it this way. See it this way in your mind's eye that Jesus is in circle. He, he is all around him are these people who are not disposed fondly towards him. And he goes through and he says, look, effectively... Have you not been paying attention? Have you not seen the things that I've done? Because if you've seen the things I've done, you would believe in me. If you've seen the things I've done, then my testimony to you that you so request to be plain, it would be self-evident. And so he gets there into verse 30, and he says, I and the Father are one. And there's a pause, there's a break. But you can imagine that this crowd gathered around him, they hear that, they, they hear him say this, and what do they do? Do they start looking for accolades to give to him? Do they start turning around and saying, look, hey, Melissa, this sounds pretty good, you want to follow this guy? No, what do they do? They're driven to anger. You recognize that it is the purview of the Roman government to put someone to death at the time of Jesus. They've reserved that right for themselves. How special. But what do the Jews do? Jesus says, I and the Father are one. And they seek to usurp the governmental authority over them. They seek to put a man to death. This is what we see. This is what we see. The Jews, hearing what Jesus said, picked up stones again to stone him. This is a repeated pattern we see. Jesus goes out, he talks, it comes to this place, and they start looking for some way to put him to death. They don't like what he has to say, but they certainly want him to say so plainly. And on the basis of his testimony of the sameness of the mission between he and the Father, they pick up stones and they want to stone him. I'm not an especially brave man. I'm not a coward, but I'm not especially brave. I've, I've never imagined myself, if I were facing in a circle by people and they picked up stones, that I would in turn begin to ask them questions. I think I would go for more of the fetal defensive posture like covering major organs. I'm not sure what that looks like, but I imagine this is probably where I would be. Look at Jesus' disengaging question. I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? 
Jesus pulls it right back into his self-revelation to them through his works that he's done. So the basis of their disbelief comes because they fail to receive his works. They fail to recognize Jesus as the Messiah based upon his works. And so he pulls them right back into this. In the midst of their anger, in the midst of their desire and thirst for vengeance, in the midst of their very much real wanting to put him to death, he pulls them back in. Even in that moment where his life and many of us would feel threatened and, and, and you too, even though you laughed at me, would be right there alongside me in the fetal position. In that moment, Jesus asked, and he extends to them again, entreating them again to come and believe. That's what I see there. It's not Jesus having a wise crack and, and trying to catch them in words. It's Jesus extending to them and inviting them again to come and to believe in him. As he's already told them, his works give testimony to who he is. And so this is him calling them again, inviting them again to believe in Jesus on the basis of the works that they have seen. And so his question hits right at the heart of belief. Look what he says. It's not just the good works that he's done, but it's the good works from the Father. He sees his extension of doing things there in Jerusalem and around him as coming from the Father. Elsewhere, Jesus said, he is only able to do those things that his Father has given him to do. Jesus, the subservient son, Jesus, the obedient son, freely extends once again to those threatening to take his life to come and believe. The Jews picked up stones to stone him and he responds. So the Jews answer, and they, uh, I can imagine they're likely puzzled at this, and so they respond and say, look, hey, hold on a second. This is, this is not the conversation we want to have. It's not for good works that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you being a man, make yourself out to be God. They thought they had him. In their minds, they suppose, oh, finally, he said something so plain that we can go after him. He said something so plain that there's not a court in the land that would, would, would imprison us on the basis of what we're ready to do. So they went and they grabbed up stones and they're getting ready to stone him. And Jesus said, for which of my good works are you going to stone me? And they said, oh, Bubba, it's got nothing to do with your good works. They were unable to argue with the works of Jesus. But what they didn't like what they didn't like was that Jesus wasn't coming as they supposed that he should. It's not for good works that we're going to stone you, but it's for you being a man, make yourself out to be God. You know, what Jesus does here next, if you're not careful to pay attention, will really throw you for a loop. What Jesus does here next is he enters into this argument, engaging them at the level where they were. He pulls out from the Old Testament using Psalm 82, and we're going to have to look at that together. Listen carefully. Jesus answered them is it not written in your law i said you are gods if he speaking of god if he called them gods to whom the word of god came and scriptures cannot be broken do you say of him whom the father consecrated and sent into the world you are blaspheming well, let's break that down i'm getting a lot of these looks like what <laughs> like assuredly they just threw the stones at him because they didn't understand what he was saying I, th I think that's in the TNIV. What he goes on to say, he says, is it not written in your law, I said you are God's? Flip over to Psalm 82. Jesus was an expert in the use of the Old Testament. And as such, he's pulling them back into this. Now, recognize that the sum and substance of their charge against him 
was they felt that he had attributed divine nature to himself. He'd attributed this divine name, God, to himself, right? That's what, that's what they are charging him with. Psalm 82 says, God has taken his place in the divine council in the midst of, everybody say, God's. God has taken his place in the divine council in the midst of God's. He holds judgment. Who is holding judgment? Everybody say, God holds judgment. Now look what the question is. It says, how long, this is coming from the perspective of God, how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? This is the charge against the gods, little g. Partiality and unfair judgment. And then there's this entreaty. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the needy and deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They neither... They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are, say, are shaken. I said, you are gods. Sons of the Most High, all of you, check this out, nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. And then there's this great entreaty. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. The stipulation made in Psalm 82 is that there were lesser beings, be it human or angel, that were engaged in judgment. And in their judgment, they were engaged in false judgment. In their judgment, they were engaged in doing things that were not revealing the nature of God. And what Jesus goes on to argue effectively is, look, hey, look. Is not your scripture, which cannot be broken, which cannot be violated, does it not also use the word God to refer to a lesser being? See, he's pulling them in. He's pulling them in. He says, is there not a reference to gods spoken of by those who were deemed by the God, capital G, as being inferior? Do you get what I'm saying? So we've got God's small g who are inferior, who are judging Falsely. Everybody say the small g gods judges falsely. You do get it. I knew you would. Jesus' argument is your scripture, the one that you hold as Jews that cannot be violated, it has already used that word gods to refer to an inferior being. Inferior to whom? To God. To God proper. To Yahweh. To Elohim. Now look what he goes on to say, now that we've got that in our heads. Know this, Jesus is not saying that he himself is inferior. You can catch the uh, distinction that he makes. Is it not written in your lies, said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scriptures cannot be broken. And so he says, look, we can establish that, that your scripture refers to other people other than God as being gods. And they all said, uh-huh, yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh. Imagine they're holding big stones while they're doing this. It's more, uh-huh, 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 yeah, okay. He said, Scripture can't be broken. They said, that's right, can't be broken. If they were Baptists, they'd say amen. amen. There you go. We got one Baptist back there. <laughs> we'll talk later. He says, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world? He, now he's making self-reference. Now he's making self-reference. Do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming? Because I said I am the son of God? If I'm not doing the works of the Father, then do not believe me. 
Jesus calls them into belief on the basis of his works. Jesus calls them into belief on the basis of his revelation of himself to them in healing the blind, in freeing the lame from being stuck and unable to move about. Jesus calls them into belief on the basis of who he has shown himself to be. And friends, he has only showed himself to be that which the Father entrusted him to be. Do you see what he's saying there? Are you calling the one whom the Father sent and consecrated, established, set apart, recognized as holy and wholly different? Are you saying of him that he's blaspheming because he refers to himself as the Son of God? If I'm not doing the works of my Father, then don't believe me. Effectively, what you've already testified is that you're not stoning me on the basis of those works. But it, friend, it is on the basis of these works that you should in fact believe. You look for a word to come to you plainly. And what Jesus has shown them is that his word has been more than plain. It has been demonstrated in each and every act of kindness. Each and, act, each and every act of mercy. Each and everything he did. He testifies that he alone is God that he alone is worthy of their worship, that he alone is worthy to be praised. Look what he goes on to say. I'm doing the works the Father gave me, verse 38. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works. Why? That you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. There are people I just really don't care for. We're just, we're just not friends. We don't hang out much. They rub me the wrong way. I rub them the wrong way. But I've yet to encounter somebody that is actively seeking to take my life. Jesus, surrounded by men that want to take his life, bids them come. Jesus, surrounded by men who want to see nothing more than him dead, him suffering, him in pain and agony. And in the midst of this, he bids them come. He calls them back to these works and he says, look, you saw my works. Even if you don't believe, believe in the works and in so doing, come to understand who I am. Believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Jesus manifests, displays the Father. And that's what he's doing to these. There's a sad response to this. Just as there's a sad response to so many when the gospel is extended. So many we extend the gospel with, we walk in and we say, do you know that there is a God who created you, that even though you rebelled against him, that he still loves you and he bids you come? That basically as Jesus is, is displaying, is extending the gospel to these men, they refuse to see it, they refuse to hear it. And look what happens here in the end. It says again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. And he went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first. Jesus is going full circle. And there he remained. I want you to see the difference between the reaction of the Jews and those that Jesus went to minister to. The reaction of the Jews is disbelief and anger. But the reaction of those he went to minister to, it says, and many came to him, and they said, John, speaking of John the Baptist, did no sign. 
John didn't have any miracles. Nothing extraordinary happened. He was, in, he was in a little bit of an oddity. But he didn't do any sign. He didn't do any miracles. And they said, John did no sign. But everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed him there. What we find in John 10 is that Jesus in the flesh is giving testimony of himself to the Jews on the basis of his works, and they refuse to believe. But what we see there in the end of John is that many, based upon the testimony of John the Baptist, that there would come one later, one for whom John is preparing the way, and he's going to do these signs, and he's going to do these wonders. And John would describe it as saying that I am not worthy to untie the thong of his sandals. This is the one for whom we should all wait. This is the one for whom we should all give honor. So Jesus goes full circle, and he meets up with those who knew John, who knew John's testimony. They see Jesus, and they compare Jesus' actions with the words from John the Baptist, and they say, everything John said about this man is true. And it's on the basis of that testimony that they believe. It is on the basis of the testimony of those recorded in Scripture that we believe. We are not looking for miraculous signs. We are not looking for heaven and earth to be moved. Friends, heaven and earth has already been moved. God sent his son. He sent his son because he was moved by love. He was moved to suffer the consequences of sin, sin that separated you from God. He sent his son to bear that wrath, to bear that burden. And in receiving that wrath, poured out from the Father onto the Son, He extends to you the same opportunity he extended to those Jews. To come and to believe. But to believe on the basis of those things recorded. To believe on the basis of those things said. To believe on the basis of the love of God recorded and transmitted and brought to you today. As we prepare to take the second of the two elements representing the blood of Jesus which was spilled, which was poured out. Joe is going to sing a song based on Psalm 46, and this is what I want you to meditate on. Psalm 46 records these words. It says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way. Though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, Though the mountains tremble at its swelling, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when when morning dawns, the nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, Behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariot with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. I would ask again that as you meditate on this, that you would take and hold until all have been served, and then we would take the cup of the Lord together.
Reading again from Matthew 26, starting in verse 27. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. Let me ask you to all stand as we enter into a time of response. Every time we open up God's word, he is calling us to respond to him. In fact, as his his word goes out and we hear it, whether in our homes or we're in this time of public gathering together, we cannot help but respond to his word. And he calls on each and every one of us to respond in the way that he is communicating. Not in the way your wife hopes you respond. Not in the way your husband hopes you respond. Not in the way that I as your pastor hope you respond. But friends, God is calling on each and every one of us not to be empty hearers who hear the word go forward and remain unmoved. But he calls on us to be a broken people before a healing king to cry out to him, heal me, to rest in the sure promise of him that we are able to be still in the middle of the battle. For the battle is already He declares himself to be victorious and he bids us to rest in his sure power, in his sure victory. And he has won the victory over sin and death and he calls us to walk in light of that reality. Amen next moments as we sing together the song that Joe sang over us, let us give our hearts to respond to the one true God who calls for and demands our allegiance.